Good morning, America. I love you. Don't you know me? I'm your native son. We're all native sons and daughters. I guess technically, perhaps, the Native Americans are the only real native sons and daughters. The rest of us are spiritual native sons and daughters. And we're all here cooperating, working hard to make this experiment in democracy called the United States of America a successful experiment. Part of this is our program. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. If you want to email during this program, send us an email at dj at kzyx.org. I'll be giving you a phone number to call in if you want to call into the program. I'll be giving you that later. By the way, archives of this program can be found at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and on the KZYX website on Jukebox. Well, today we're going to be talking about the topics of our times, topics we've talked about over the last close to 10 years on this program, topics that are in the news some of which the politicians running for president are talking about. Topics that have been important to me and I hope to you. Income equality, income inequality, big topic. How is that related to health? Increasing evidence from scientists the world over indicates that many health outcomes, everything from life expectancy to infant mortality and obesity, can be linked to the level of economic inequality that is going on in our dear country and around the world. Two, political corruption. Political corruption is having a disastrous effect on us and we need to do something about it. We'll talk about Citizens United. We'll talk about lobbyists who are legal bribers. We'll talk about term limits. And we'll talk about needed election reform. Obesity, a systemic illness created by our culture. 70% of us, very close to 70% of us, are overweight or obese. I myself was one of that group. At one point in my life, I was almost 100 pounds heavier than I am now. So I speak from personal experience that this is a terrible illness that none of the politicians are talking about. Climate change, topic four. What to say here, you heard a pause. ISIS, a threat for all seasons. Firearm ownership, very controversial topic in our country. And then we'll talk about enhanced entitlements, maternity leave, free college education, subsidization for single parents. And we'll talk about civil rights, the right to ingest whatever we want in the privacy of our home, the right to choose our way of dying, the right to decide on what we have inside of us and what we do with it that's particularly relevant to women. Those are the topics. Maybe we'll get to them all today, maybe not, but we'll do our best. First, news and notes in psychology and medicine. I've got some stuff I've just got to tell you about. First of all, Sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is when you have an obstruction that causes a delay and a prevention of oxygen getting to your brain. It's very dangerous. You can hear it when you hear people snoring. That's one of the signs of sleep apnea. 
A recent study has indicated that women who have apnea are in a much more dangerous situation than men. The study tracked participants for 14 years, 737 men, 879 women, average age 63. They were all free of cardiovascular disease at the start of the study. What they found is that women with sleep apnea have a much higher risk of cardiovascular disease, enlarged heart. They've had a higher rate of, of death and, and heart failure. Yes, when everything else was controlled, all these risks and all these difficulties persisted. So if you think there's a possibility that you have sleep apnea, take a test. It's an easy test. It's not a comfortable test. You have to wear something at night, but you can find out. And there are cures for sleep apnea, but you don't want to go long periods of time. By the way, one of the signs that you have it is if you keep being tired in the morning after a night's sleep, that's because you're not getting enough oxygen to your brain. A few weeks ago, I went through a whole list of supplements, dietary supplements, and gave you the results of science experiments on these supplements. Almost every single one of them yielded no results, no results, no conclusive scientific results for taking supplements. Now we've got something even more serious. A new study, a very large study, by the federal government found that injuries caused by dietary supplements have led to more than 20,000 emergency room visits a year, many involving young adults with cardiovascular problems after taking supplements marketed for weight loss and energy enhancement. Those are the two big ones, weight loss and energy enhancement. Please, folks, if you're taking those supplements, they're over-the-counter, there are very few regulations on them, be careful. Read them. Talk to your friends about them first. Talk to your doctor. Talk to somebody, but just don't go in there because of some advertising on television or radio and buy a bunch of these things. They're, they're, many of them are just snake oil. Some of them are people trying to do some good, but 20,000 emergency room visits is a lot. I mean, just imagine if we had 20,000 emergency room visits for cocaine. We'd, remember those days? I mean, the country would be going wild. We have virtually no emergency room visits for marijuana. Uh, but imagine if there were 20,000. You think the legalization movement would be going on? I hardly think so. So, again, just be careful about emergency room supplements. Um, many of you are taking sleeping pills. I've talked about the dangers of sleeping pills over the years. We have a new study now that says that sleeping pills help people fall asleep maybe 20 minutes faster than a placebo. Well, that's interesting. I mean, do you want to take the pill and, uh, and have 20 extra minutes or get to sleep 20 minutes faster, or do you want to not take the pill and spend that time sort of dozing off, dealing with your insides or having fun with your insides? It's up to you, but do know that 20 minutes seems to be the uh, amount of time that you get from sleeping pills. Here's sort of a fun one. Somebody I knew, a scientist I knew years ago, Dr. John Lilly, 
you remember him from the book, The Center of the Cyclone. He was the scientist who uh, engaged in conversations with dolphins. Back in, uh, in 1954, uh, the neuroscientist John Lilly uh, got involved with flotation tanks. Some of them, they were called at the time, Samadhi tanks. The history of this really goes back to psychologists in Canada who developed something called a stimulus isolation. The first they called it stimulus deprivation. Then somebody said, hey, you know, you're not really deprived of, of, uh, of sensation when you're deprived of external uh, sensation because you produce, each of us produces our own sensation. So we changed the name from stimulus deprivation to stimulus isolation. Basically, you get into a controlled environment in a controlled temperature of water. There, it's, it's, there's no sound, and it's so quiet, it's actually called an anechoid chamber, and in that, you can hear, sometimes, you can hear the blood rushing in your body. You can hear squeaks that are going on when, when tendons are moving. And it's an isolation device. Well, now, it's taking off commercially. People are renting these around the country. An hour-long session can cost anywhere from 30 to to $100. And there are some folks that are, are, uh, that are uh, manufacturing these. Uh, there's a couple called Lee Perry and, uh, and her husband, Glenn, uh, one's 83 and one's 74. They said that we've been producing these for 70 years and they wanted to take off like yoga. Uh, I myself have been experimenting with stimulus, um, isolation by, um, using a snorkel and laying face forward in salty water over at uh, Wilbur Hot Springs. Uh, as you know, I'm connected with Wilbur, so I better say that out loud on the, on the, online. Um, but I, I lay in that salty water face forward with the snorkel and, and in effect have a stimulus isolation tank and it's a wonderful meditative technique. Um, so I want you to know that this is uh, making a resurgence. Ah, any more news and notes that we must talk about today? I think that's it. Uh, I'm now going to talk about the big topics of the day. The first one is the income inequality. I've been talking about it a great deal. The politicians are finally talking about it. They're not talking about it, though, in relation to health. Poor health and poverty do go high, hand in hand. High levels of inequality, our epidemiologists show, negatively affect the health of even the affluent. Why is that? Because inequality reduces social cohesion our togetherness as a national family, this or a local family. We have classes, you have separation as a result of this. That leads to more stress, more fear, and insecurity for everybody. But we are marching further and further towards inequality. America's richest 10% now hold nearly 85% of the country's assets. In 1989, the nation's richest tenth of families held 79% of the assets. I could go on and probably bore you with all the statistics, but there's no question about the validity of the statistics. We are marching towards oligarchy. Remember what an oligarchy is. An oligarchy is when a small number of people usually distinguished by royalty, wealth, family ties, education, corporations, religious or military control. 
when a small number of people control an entire country. Often it's a few prominent families who pass on their influence from one generation to the next. This sometimes can, can, be, uh, can lead to a tyranny, where a few of those people then take control of the entire government. We're marching towards that. I don't have a solution. I have ideas. Do you have solutions? Do you have ideas? Feel free to call in during the program. What would you do to level the playing field in a way that's fair? What can we do? 707-937-5103 if you've got a solution, something we can do. Sure, some people say a higher inheritance tax. It's called a death tax. Set it at $5 million. Anything over $5 million and you give up 90 or 95%. Of course, people who have money rail against that one. What else? Change the income tax. That's another way to do it. What do you all think? Do you think we should be doing it? Or should we move towards oligarchy and let the few control the many? Well, I think I'll stop right there. You're going to hear plenty about it in the upcoming election because finally, finally, the politicians are talking about income inequality. Not easy for them to do because they're part of the upper group, aren't they? It's true. It's human nature. How much do you want to give up once you have something? Should we take that call? Okay, we'll take the call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, how you doing? Hi there. Hello? Hey. Michael? Can't hear him. Okay, we're going to move on to, uh, I don't know what happened with that caller, but we're going to move on to political corruption. Political corruption. We have something called the Citizens United, the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court. Let's do a little history. Citizens United, the PAC, was founded in 1988 by Floyd Brown, a longtime Washington political insider. He did this with major funding from the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers are industrialists who own the second largest privately owned company in the United States. This group promotes corporate interests, socially conservative causes, and candidates who advance their goals. The Citizens United uh, decision by the Supreme Court eliminated some restrictions on how corporations can spend their money uh, backing candidates. The, um, the decision overturned a centuries-old precedent allowing the government to regulate spending. As a result, the Citizens United decision has greatly affected the way corporations and unions can spend their money on elections. Basically, they can give almost unlimited amounts of money to these PACs, and the PAC can then give money to the candidates. We have one person alone, for example, a man named Sheldon Adelson, who with his family has given $40 million to these PACs in order to support candidates. Think about human nature. Somebody buys you a dinner. All right, maybe next time you're thinking, you'll buy dinner. The next time the person buys you the dinner again before you can do anything. 
Then the person buys a third debt. At a certain point, you're going to start feeling obligated. You're going to want to give them something back. That's human nature. You get something, you want to give something back. But what happens when you have these people called lobbyists who just keep giving, 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 and giving to politicians? What happens is they then have influence over the politician. I mean, how many rides on the lobbyist jet plane, how many fancy clubs, how many fancy dinners, how many vacations, how many trips can a a politician, a congressman, a senator, how many can they accept before they start to feel some sense of human obligation? In effect, the lobbyists are allowed to do what you might call legal bribery. It's not actual bribery, but it's very close to it. Until we do something about one man's ability to give $40 million in the Citizens United, until we do something about lobbyists being able to give, 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 until we do something about congressmen and senators getting a job and taking it for 15 or 20 years, and until we do something about election reform, how many of you out there think that we ought to just elect the President of the United States by popular vote and get rid of all this stuff in between with the Electoral College and all these other in-between positions, in-between meaning between us and voting? How do you all feel about that? Anybody want to chime in? We're talking about income equality and the effect on the health of every person in the country, be they rich or poor. I'm talking about political corruption, where one person can give $40 million, $40 million to to back candidates. We're talking about lobbyists who have almost unlimited power to lay any kind of trips, vacations, gifts on congressmen. This is our country. This is what's happening to our country. How do you all feel about it? Join me, please. All right, I'll take the call. Hi there. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Uh, You're on the air. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. Um, It's a great show, first of all. A couple things on the subject of solutions. One real quick is a lady the other night called in the discussion and I haven't looked into this, but she was mentioning, I think, Switzerland has, like, around four elections a year for, like, laws and whatnot, and it, in a sense, a very direct democracy, um, rather than this representative democracy that we have. Um, beyond that, I want to go back to the income inequality real quick and just talk about inflation and the paradigm of endless growth. Um, So I'm 27 years old. When I was a kid, a million dollars still seemed to have, you know, a pretty good value. And now it's almost looked at like, you know, a million dollars is not that much money. And that's kind of a scary thing. And beyond that, I just think, you know, cities now looking at a $15 minimum wage, well, that's not going to help if the price of food goes up after the minimum wage does. And so really, I think we need to slow the growth of inflation. And maybe if you could talk about 
why inflation at all is a good thing because people in economics seem to say some inflation is good, but I don't understand why any inflation is good. Thank you. So, Thank you. Anybody want to call in and say why some inflation is good? Why don't prices stay the same? The more, more importantly, what good, he's asking, is raising the minimum wage to $15 if the price of everything is going to go up even more than the minimum wage, which basically keeps people in the same position or makes it worse? It's clearly documented that income is going down and has been going down for less for approximately 10 years since the big debacle in in 2007 and 2008 when people made hundreds of millions and billions of dollars at the top while the rest of us chipped in to pay the cost of that debacle you know it's called socializing the loss and capitalizing the gain Socializing the loss means there's a great loss and all the people chip in on it. Capitalizing the gain means the people at the top, the people at the top get all the money. Well, how do you all feel about that? And what are we the people going to do about that? It's an important question the listener is, bring, is raising. What's the good of raising the minimum wage if you're going to raise the prices even even higher than that. My own, my own thoughts about this, George Washington had 300 slaves. George Washington had to feed them, he had to clothe them, he had to take care of them medically, and when they got old and couldn't work as much, he had to continue to house them and feed them and clothe them and take care of them. When the slaves were moved off the master's property into something called apartments and given a small amount of money, the master no longer had to feed them, no longer had to house them, no longer had to take care of their health, no longer had to take care of their lives, but still got a great deal of work out of them. I think that's the system that we're presently in. I think that's the reason that we're called wage slaves because we slave for wages while there are people who are living off the interest of their accumulated wealth. When you live off the interest of your accumulated wealth, you're not working. You're just sitting on a pile of cash or a pile of gold in the other old days, and that amount is going to increase and increase and increase while everybody is where else is working by the hour. You know, the re easiest way to understand our system is, is to get together with a group of friends and play the game of Monopoly, because Monopoly is the ultimate game of capitalism. And if you play it for the weekend, what you will find is a few people will end up with all the money on the board. That's not because they're conspiring. It's not because they're bad people. It's not because they're extra greedy. It's because it just has within it, that's part of the capitalist system, that once you accumulate a certain amount of wealth, that amount of wealth is going to grow faster than anybody else can possibly make money by the hour. And so when you have this form of accumulation, you're going to go higher and higher up the food chain of accumulation of wealth. 
again, not because they're bad, not conspiracy, not kind of any kind of, of, of malfeasance, but simply because inherent in this particular system of trade and barter called capitalism, a few people are going to end up with the greatest amount of the assets. And until we figure out another system, this is what we have, and the only check and balance that I know of to level the playing field are the things that are so difficult for people to accept, namely death tax or income tax or sales tax, flat tax, some way that will more, more level out the field. Right now what we have is a kind of institutionalized nobility, but instead of a person getting a title, duke, marquis, and so on, count, what you, you, they accumulate a great deal of wealth and then they can take care of their children for the next hundred generations. It's actually unconstitutional because our constitution says there shall be no nobility. But we got off the topic a bit. I'm going to come back to topic number three now, leave the political corruption behind unless some of you want to call in and talk about it. Leave the income inequality behind. I suppose you're listening to this and it's like, who needs to hear it anymore? Because what are we going to do about it? I understand that, but it still eats at me because, because it's hurting us and it's hurting our health. And health is what I'm about and that's what this program is about. And if you're listening, I think it's part of what you're about. By the way, if you don't want to call in and have your voice recognized, you can send an email to dj at kzyx.org. dj at kzyx.org. If I'm coming on a little strong today, it's because this is my chance to rant, because typically I'm interviewing people, and they get the chance to rant, but today is my day. I don't take them too often, and I hope, I hope you'll, uh, you'll put up with me. The, the, the next biggest topic, and, and it, I have it as number three, I, I don't know whether it should be number one, maybe it should be even before number one. It's the topic of obesity. And please know, when I talk about this topic, this is not in any way, in the slightest, to shame or blame those of you who are obese and overweight, because I am one of you. I have been close to 100 pounds more than I am now. And that means I was close to 300 pounds. And I know what it's like to walk in the world at close to 300 pounds. I know what it's like to look down and see my stomach sticking out at close to 300 pounds and to feel ashamed of myself at going to the beach when I was single, asking for a date at 300 pounds. I didn't ask for very many dates. It was a very difficult way to live. I think almost everyone who is overweight or obese, is challenged. And it's a major health issue because of so many, so many sequelae that come from being overweight. And, 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 and I'm not exaggerating when I say that one in three adults in our country are obese. Two out of three adults in our country are overweight or obese. And, and the numbers go on it's not an equal opportunity employer, though it does go across all socioeconomic brackets. The reason I keep talking about it over so many years is that, think about it for a second, folks. If 70% of our country had a common cold, 
would it not make headlines? If 70% of our country had pneumonia, would there be anything else on the news but the fact that 70% of us had pneumonia? If, if 70% of us uh, wounded a finger, it would make national news. And here we have 70%, close to 70% of our country are overweight or obese, and not one politician is talking about it. You've heard the Republican debates. You've heard the, the, the Democratic debates. You've even heard the progressive, like, uh, 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 Bernie Sanders, who's talking about major social issues. He's not mentioning obesity. I'm getting a signal here from Michael. Michael, sure, I'll take the call. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Well, you're very quietly on the air because I can't hear you at all, so I'll go on. There's all kinds of reasons for this obesity and overweight epidemic. I'm not going to bore you with the reasons, but I am going to tell you that energy in and energy out is what it's about. If you take in more than you burn, you're going to gain weight. Yes, inactive lifestyle is one of the reasons we're watching TV and sitting in front of computers more and exercising less. There's lack of sidewalks. There's lack of places for recreation. That's one of the contributing factors. The work schedules, 12, 14-hour days sitting behind a desk is another factor. I'll be right with you there. I'm just going to finish this. and I'll, I'll, or Let's take the, put them on. Welcome. I'm, I'm going to call on you in a moment, but I'm going to just finish this list. Food portions have gotten larger. There's a lack of access to healthy foods by a significant part of the population. Food advertising is enormous. We also have genetic factors, of course, thyroid and so on. But what, we have emotional factors, we have smoking factors, age, it's, it, you burn less as you get older. Research shows that lack of sleep increases the risk of, of obesity. And then the, the problems, coronary artery disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, abnormal blood fats, metabolic syndrome, cancer, osteoarthritis, all these things. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome. It's a breathing disorder that affects some obese people. Sleep apnea is more common. Gallstones are more common. I mean, there are so many things that come out of being overweight and obese. How do we get the attention of the government, of the state, of who is in charge here of something that's, that's, that's hurting 70% of our brothers and sisters, our mothers and our fathers, our children? How do we get the attention? Are you still waiting patiently? Yes. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thanks for waiting patiently. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, Dorothea Dorman calling. Uh, I use a raw, fresh, organic diet as a way of staying fit. Uh, I'm 77, and I can wear a dress from when I was 23. It fits perfectly. Maybe even a little better, because I'm, I've learned much more about eating organically and, and a healthy diet. You sound uh, terrific. You sound really fit, and you're exactly my age. If I was single, I'd ask you out, but I'm, happ oh. I'm happily married. <laughs> well, you're too big. I'm, I'm only a 
hundred pounds is five three. Oh my gosh, I'm six and, five and I weigh two hundred pounds. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to say some things about, I, I, you know, at this point there isn't a lot we can do about the national economy. Uh, but one thing I've noticed is the corporations are all organized in a hierarchy. They get cooperation, and yet it's very hard to get cooperation from people if you need help, you want to work on something. People aren't helping each other. People are running away from discussion of real issues. Uh, it's very difficult to talk to them. And until we understand that cooperation and mutual helpfulness is what creates wealth, we're going to have a hard time. American individualism isn't working. And, you know, and the corruption in the political realm, uh, we have representative government all right, and this includes our local board of supervisors. They represent the corporation. I hear what you're saying, and thank you so much for the call. I, I agree with Dorothy. We, we need to, that's part of what, the, when I say in the mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, one of the missions is to encourage community, people getting together, getting together in neighborhoods, getting together in towns. I want to give you an example of this. In the small town of Fort Bragg, California, which is about three hours northwest of San Francisco, a man named John Fremont has put together a, a conversation group which started on Tuesdays, I think it's now moved to Fridays, in the town hall of, uh, of Fort Bragg, where he's bringing people together to talk about issues, and people are meeting. I've heard 30, 40, 50 people are meeting. Imagine if this b becomes a model for meeting around the country, for getting together to talk about neighborhood and, and, and neighborly issues where we can support and help one another in the midst of this what seems like almost madness, madness to me. How can we allow one person to give $40 million as a donation? How do we allow 70% of our country to be overweight or obese? How long can we continue this? Well, let's move on to some of the other topics. Climate change is a big topic. That's something the scientists have to work on. I totally agree with Bill Gates, who has said this is something that scientists around the world need to get together on, have competitions on, cooperate on, and be innovative on, because it is something that we can do something about, but it's going to take creativity. That's, that's years. I don't know what else. I don't know what else to say. Um, I just got a note here. Uh, after I talked about this little experiment with uh, that John Fremont started in, in Fort Bragg, I got a note here that a local citizen, Linda Jupiter, also has started a, a, a citizens group again in, the, in this right around the small town of Fort Bragg, California, called Colonization of the Mind. Maybe you can look it up online. Thank you for handing that to me. These are citizens who are getting together with other citizens to cooperate, to see what we can do for one another, because that is something that can be done. Well, we've got a big topic here. Mines will launch right into it. It's called firearm ownership, fire on, firearm ownership, gun politics. It's a controversial area of American politics that's primarily defined 
by the actions of two groups, the gun control and the gun rights activists. These groups often disagree on the interpretation of laws and court cases related to firearms, as well as about the effects of gun control on crime and public safety. The two groups, right? Gun control groups and gun rights activists. Take note, there are reportedly 270 million civilian firearms in the United States. This goes way back in the history of our country. It goes back to the time when people needed guns to shoot animals in order to live. It became part of the tradition. It also became part of the tradition as security against tyranny. Yes, interesting to note that 65% of the people interviewed say that owning a firearm, a good reason for it, is to guard against tyranny. Yeah. Since 1990, debates regarding firearm availability and gun violence have been characterized by concerns about the right to bear arms, such as found in the Second Amendment, and there are debates about the responsibility of the government to serve the needs of the citizens by preventing crime and deaths. These are the big issues. The gun control supporters say that broad or unrestricted gun rights inhibit the government from fulfilling, for, from fulfilling the responsibility to prevent crime and deaths. The gun rights supporters promote firearms for self-defense, hunting, sporting activities, and again, against security, against tyranny. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Security against tyranny. What that means is, if you've got 270 million people or 270 million guns out there, the chances of somebody having a coup d'etat, taking over the government and forming a tyranny, are reduced, these people believe, because that person or group of people who take over the government are going to have to deal with the other end of 270 million firearms. And as we know, as we, the United States, knows from Iraq and Afghanistan, what's called the plinking defense is really a psychological catastrophe. What's the plinking defense? Thousands or hundreds of thousands of citizens taking random shots at military people from rooms, from hotel rooms, from apartments, from anywhere. Eventually, you have to put boots on the ground, and if those boots on the ground are being shot at by local citizens, you got a big problem. And so the supporter of firearms point this out. Gun control advocates state that keeping guns out of the hands of criminals results in safer communities, while gun rights advocates state that firearm ownership by law-abiding citizens reduces crime. Well, here's the clinker on this whole issue. In 2003, a study by the government's Center for Disease Control called for further study because there was insufficient evidence to determine the effectiveness of firearms laws 
with regard to violent outcomes. You got that? That's an important thing. It doesn't get talked about much. This was a government study showing that they, were, they didn't have enough evidence to make a connection between firearm laws and the, and the reduction of violent crimes. It seems like that would, but it's not in actuality. How do you all feel about this issue? Who's going to call in and talk about what your thoughts are about this controversy between gun control and gun rights? Hmm? 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103. One side says, take away the guns from good citizens and only the criminals will have guns. What's going to happen then? Someone's calling in. It's a tough issue to talk about. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the line. Yes, I think that you've got to somehow focus on what are the causes of violence. I'm a pacifist. I've never owned a gun in all my life, and I believe that we have to educate and learn nonviolent conflict resolution begins with me, and that as a society we have been violent, we have been genocidal toward the Native American people. Uh, We are a militaristic country today. The amount of money, 50% of the national income going for military is obscene. And until we deal with the police and the prisons and the larger spectrum of intolerance and racism, we're, we're going to continue because we've, it, it comes from the heart. We've got to get in, in our hearts that, this, that nonviolence is not a solution. And, you know, when you began this, this discussion today about mental health and the body, that inequality of income, the inability of people to afford, you know, even if they're working, to afford a house, to afford to eat. <clears throat> There's a larger economic, uh, social structure than underlying pinning. And, and until we can learn to, to dialogue and, and to be heard, because it doesn't help if you go to Board of Supervisors meetings and speak for three minutes about issues that have been, books have been written about land use planning and protecting our endangered species and protecting our farmlands. And it doesn't matter. The people that are in power are still serving the corporate structures. And, and, and we are all in this boat together. And we've got to somehow raise consciousness, and I think that's what you're doing. And by the way, I'm 170 pounds, and I'm five foot three and a half. And I don't consider myself obese. I consider myself a strapping rural woman. And I've had six kids living, and I'm just healthy and happy. And we've got it. We got to somewhere allow for women to be big. I'm Swedish and Belgian, and American Indian, and we're big people. And I don't want to be made to feel guilty because I'm because I'm healthy. So I've got my two cents. Good for you. Good for you. That's a wonderful thing. Six children and bless your heart. Yes, please. I hope none of you listening will in any way hear anything that's been said on this program has been criticism, shaming, or blaming for those of us who are part of the 70% who are overweight and obese. Certainly that's not my intention any more than I would ever be critical of any of us, my family, myself, or, or anyone for getting a cold, or for getting cancer, gosh, bite my tongue, or for getting any other illness, because this is an illness, and there's no shame and blame on an illness, but it's something that our culture must look at because we are producing this illness within ourselves. Sure, we'll take that call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. You are 
Hi. Hi. Uh, yeah, I think well, you better turn your radio off, sir, oh, because oh, we hear it in the okay. background. It's coming right through. Thank you kindly. I, I, heard, I heard myself there. Yes. I, I, I was going, um. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, that's absolutely fantastic what the, that, you know, um, nonviolent uh, or non, you know, aggressive, uh, uh, you know, diplomatic skills are, you know, it's fantastic. You know, we, we need to be brothers to each other and, uh, I, ju I just got out of low gap, and um, the way we treat uh, these potential criminals, you know, is just tragic. You know, we we, we gotta, you know, I'm I want to say that. Were you maybe, Were you incarcerated? At low people don't know what low gap is. There's a prison there. We a yes. jail. Were you in the jail there? Yes, I, I've been. I, I've been there for like seven days. Thank you. And and I, I have intimate. Uh, well, we, I, I well, got to meet everybody there. You know, these people are pretty decent, and uh, you know, and they they're treated, treated they tre like dogs. They treated they treated you decent, or they treated you poorly at that place at the jail. Yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't like uh, you know Midnight Express, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, what were you I, what I want, what what, want, what were you doing in there? What were you in there for? Oh, DUI. A DUI. Well. Alcohol is another issue that we'll talk about. We've talked about before, but no, I th I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm, you've I'm, learned your I'm, lesson. I, I was, uh, you know, I'm drinking and smoking myself to death. You know. Oh my gosh! How I, old? Are, like, how old are you? Oh, fifty-two. Well, I don't know what to say. You've had fifty-two years. Maybe you're uh, satisfied with what you've had. I'm certainly not going to lecture you on the on the evils of uh, of what you're doing to yourself. Sorry, well, you spent time you know, in jail. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, the, you know, as a society. You know, um, you know, we should really think about the least among us, and you know, and and what's going down there at Low Gap is just just tragic. You know, Thank you. We're, we're we're creating a, a whole uh, bunch of people who do not have uh, positive social values. Thank you so much. That's that's a that's a commentary on our prison system. It's a major topic. I think many of you know that the United States as one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. We have more people in jail in the United States than China does, and China has five times of our population, and we consider China to be a despicable, tyr tyrannical uh, uh, autocracy, uh, and, uh, and yet they have fewer people in jail than we do. The man is, is telling us something to raise our consciousness, no question about it. And I appreciate your, your referring to, uh, to us as, as your brothers. We are. I, I like that quote that says, I may not be my brother's keeper, but I am my brother's brother. And aren't we all to one another? So we're going to move on now from uh, firearm ownership, unless any of you wants to say anything more about it. But the, uh, the jury certainly isn't in on what to do. Naturally, we react when there's some terrible crime going on with guns. What is it, Michael? Something going on? We had a uh, caller that uh, sent an email, and he's concerned about the health effects of daylight savings time. He's a f the health effects of daylight savings time. 
I'd have to hear more about that. Uh, I don't, I'm nonplussed. I don't know what to say about the health effects of daylight. So, well, I guess I could say that uh, more daylight is psychologically beneficial than living in the dark. And uh, we certainly know that people who are in dark areas of the country uh, suffer from sad seasonal affective disorder as a result of it, but don't know much more what to say. Let's take that call, or maybe they can shed some light on this or another topic. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes. Hey, um, I love your show. I've listened to it for years, and um, you know, the, certainly politics is important to our health. I, I, I completely agree. Um, all of these things that uh, we're talking about, obesity, alcohol, drugs, um, and other things people do that are harmful to themselves, I've determined are all acts of personal liberty and freedom uh, in what I consider an overly administrated uh, country at this time. Americans express their freedom by doing these things, even though they're harmful. I mean, the uh, war on drugs uh, is a classic example um, the Global, Global Commission Report on Drugs is a great place to go and get that data. It came out in 2011. You can Google it. And uh, basically what, what happens is when you make things illegal or forbid them, uh, people do them as an act of liberty. Yes. So that's what I'm saying is like the politics of this is, is making people sick. Uh, same thing with the food and stuff. But I mean, to some degree, the advertisers craft a very psychologically well-crafted ads that uh, make people want to eat things they aren't good for them, like a, a soda pop has like nine teaspoons of sugar or something. Uh, and there's a report, or a Harvard, uh, they call it the nurses uh, study, about uh, if a person drinks one 12-ounce uh, soft drink a day, they double their chances of uh, becoming type 2 diabetic. And um, if, if you go to uh, diet soft drinks, it's only slightly different. You're still going to uh, have a higher chance of becoming diabetic because you can't really fake uh, your body out. But. That's right. But but anyway, um, that's what I see. I think these are acts of freedom that people are expressing themselves because we have too many laws. Thank you. And, that's uh, a very interesting, very interesting perspective. You hear, folks, what he's saying, that, that some of the things that we're doing, we're doing because we can do them and they're a way of rebelling. But unfortunately, the method of rebelling we're using is hurting ourselves. By the way, that, that, that soda pop study, just for you all to know, one drink of soda pop, 150 calories, or one drink of alcohol, that's 150 calories, you end up gaining 15.64 pounds per year. I did the math. Just multiply it out. It's 150 calories a day times 365 days a year, and you divide by 3,500 calories in a pound, and you end up with 15 pounds a year if you have that one little drink. And what's that old saying? One drink, it's not going to kill me every day. You know, one little drink, it's not going to kill me. Well, at the end of the year, it may not kill you, but it's gonna, you're going to have 15 more pounds. You keep that up for three years, you've gained 45 pounds, and you're wondering, you're scratching your head, you're saying, I didn't eat more. I, I, I will go away from the table. I just have my regular food. One, one drink. Alcohol, 150-calorie drink. Soda pop, 150-calorie, whatever it is, you're going to gain 15 pounds a year. We're going to move on to a topic that I call enhanced entitlements. What are we entitled to as citizens of the United States? 
What are we entitled to? Bernie Sanders said something very interesting that got my attention during the debate with uh, his debate with Hillary Clinton. He said that a hundred years ago or more, we agreed in this country that everyone was entitled to a high school education, and so we have provided education up through 12th grade, graduating from high school. Bernie is saying that college now, in the year 2015, is what high school was in the year 1915, and therefore we ought to have free college education for everyone. This would help level the playing field. What do you all think about that, listeners? What do you all think? Should every person be entitled to a free college education? Or should we continue the present system where people come out of college and they're tens of thousands of dollars in debt and behind what might be called the eight ball from the day one? We're going to take this last call because we're running out of time. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, just a brief observation uh, uh, about one of your previous topics. I think uh, the uh, the approach that people have uh, to guns in this country is primarily cultural. On the East Coast, which uh, was uh, populated first, and uh, the and the density of people was rather high. We didn't need to rely on guns, and so a lot of uh, gun legislation and gun control was passed. Out in the West, people were further apart, had to be more self-reliant, were afraid of the indigenous people, and also um, wild animals. And so people on the West Coast or in the Midwest and in the South uh, tend to think that guns are more important. Um, however, although our society has changed, the way that we think about, or the way that those people think about guns, hasn't changed. And also there seems to be um, more paranoia, that is, people are going to hurt you, uh, so you need a gun. And I, I think There's plenty of evidence to support what you're saying about uh, cultural regions in the United States having different histories. No question about it. People living out on the farms, living in the woods, living out in the country mm-hmm. uh, have had more use historically for guns. And right. in many areas of the country, they still have more use than people in the cities have for it. You don't go out in the city and, you know, hunt down uh, something to eat. But people in the United States are still doing that quite a bit. Um, I'm getting a signal here. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to cut you off because it's 9.57 and we are out of time. Well, we missed a few topics. Perhaps we'll get to them in the future. There's some pretty big ones um, having to do with civil rights, the right to ingest what we want to ingest in the privacy of our home, the right to die, and the right to decide what to do with a baby growing inside of ourselves. But those are going to have to wait. Archives of this program can be found at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and on the KZYX website, something called Jukebox. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLora. Please 
Join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.